0: believers to dwell and abide follow my teaching my word in your life be my disciples in word and in deed dwell on truth knowing that the truth sets you free dwell on truth knowing That the truth sets you free. Hey everyone, this is Brenton Powers from the Dwell on Truth Show. I'm here to announce that I'm back on the radio, baby, every Sunday from 8 a.m. till 9 a.m. Get up early, like Jesus did on Sunday morning when he rose from the grave. Surely you can get up out of bed. So get up, study the Word of God, listen to reasons why you should believe, and continue to dwell on truth. Because the truth will set you free.
1: I was probably an alcoholic by the time I was a senior in high school. That lasted into my early 20s and it opened the door to smoking a lot of pot. I did LSD, shrooms, speed. It was probably having a bad trip on LSD that resulted in me deciding I don't really want to go down that road. And I remember laying on my bed in my apartment, staring at the ceiling, and I said out loud, there has got to be more than this. I made the decision, I want to start going back to church. And I started going to a Calvary chapel. Within about a six-month period of time, what happened for me was I went to a church that taught the Bible, and through a steady stream of God's Word being spoken into my life, I just watched God begin to do this radical cleansing experience. So Psalm 119 says, How can a young man cleanse his way, but by taking heed according to your word?
0: Well, welcome Kevin Fitzgerald to the Dwell on Truth show. I'm glad to have you after all these months. I've been wanting to have you on. Yeah, it's good to be here. I should say it's good to be here because I'm a guest here at Calvary Chapel Yuba City. You've been one of my biggest partners in ministry with Open Air Campaigners. I think what you have to share from the pulpit and what we share behind the scenes, you have some really good insights into ministry and life and what dwell stands for. Discipleship, worship, evangelism, loving God, and loving people. So it's just good to be here with you in Yuba City. Yeah, it's good to have you here, man. You've been a blessing. Should we tell the story of how we met? I think it'd be good. Would you say 2009? I think it was in Denmark in 2009 at Calvary Chapel Scandinavia conference. Yeah.
1: So we were in Ireland until 2000. 2000- 11, and I got linked in with the Calvary Chapel Scandinavian Conference, and that was when you and I first met, but then we also would see each other in Segan, and when we left from Ireland and transitioned for a season to the Calvary Chapel Bible College in Hungary, one of the things that they said I was going to be in charge of, in addition to the, the pastoral epistles, was apologetics. Yep. Apologetics is really not my bag. Well, I have a tremendous respect for apologetics, but I don't consider myself self to be a tremendous apologist. Mm -hmm. When I was handed that course, I thought, man, I need to pull in some people to help me with this. Mm -hmm. So uh, one of them was Tom Dickerson and the other was you, because I knew that you did have a a heart for apologetics. Yes. So if you remember, you know, the classes or the teachings that I did was more like our demeanor in apologetics, because that I think is really more... there's one thing I observe about apologetics, Christian apologetics, you know, debates or whatever, I just feel like sometimes... Modern-day apologists can be very sarcastic and cutting with their remarks and Mm -hmm. insulting, and I, I thought, we can't be like that. You know, the Scripture says a servant of the Lord must not quarrel you know, but be patient to all, able to teach in humility, correcting those who were in opposition. So those were the types of things I wanted to share. So anyway, and then that was 2011, and then flash forward, you know, we moved to Yuba City in 2016, and I honestly don't even recall what year it was Mm -hmm. that I became aware that you were only four hours from us
0: out here. Well, I knew that you were here because our founding pastor from Calvary Monterey, Bill Holdridge, was in Yuba City looking for a pastor to turn things over to with that transition. Mm-hmm. So I saw his announcement that we have a... Kevin Fitzgerald is coming in. I was like, I know him. And oh, wow. That's only, what, four hours away? Yeah. So at some point I reached out to you and said, hey, maybe we can get together again. Yeah. Well, and I've always liked
1: doing things together, you know. Um, there's an expression, which I'm sure you've heard. It says, if you want to go fast, go alone. Mm-hmm. But if you want to go far, go together. Good. And so I always really valued the concept of team and doing things together. I like team-building films. Like, I like the Ocean's 11, Ocean's 12. You know, anything that has to do with, like, the building of a team and the functioning of a team, that's my kind of stuff, because I just think
0: it's kind of cool. Yeah, I see that a lot in you, (laughs) from all the different movie quotes and even uh, promo videos for different ministries and different events. If anyone was to Google Calvary Chapel Yuba City on YouTube, Mm. uh, some of the announcement videos, like the most recent one, it was... uh, pastor's log recruiting uh, people for the audiovisual ministry and it was this little drama skit that you put together. You've actually written screenplays yep. and novels and devotionals. This isn't a promo for the book or anything, but started reading your book to make him king in the subtitle, David's Mighty Men, reading it through to my son, mm, actually. Cool. So a lot of really good nuggets in there. And also I got to for the Spider-Man Eternal Home yes. play that... I got to play a role in, and I got to see you wear the hat of director that week, Yes, and I'm not an actor, but uh, (laughs) you really coached me in how to deliver some lines, and at the end... Uh, it was neat to see how the kids reacted and memorized the scripture yeah, that the really whole was. script was leading up to. That was a neat VBS that we did. So mm-hmm. praise the Lord. Thanks for all your hard work. Tell us a little more about your background. There's a picture of you in your pastor's office hmm. where you're behind a tech team with a headset on Yeah, and you have a production background. So how did you get into, were you always just attentive to all the, the audio and visuals and did it start as a musician and then you moved to the tech world? Or wh- how did did you get into that. Well, how far back do you want me to go? How young were you when you picked up a microphone? There's a photograph of
1: me that my mom has. We have a va- we had a vacuum cleaner. This would have been I was born in '71, so this would have been sometime in the mid to late '70s. I was probably six or seven years old, and we have an upright vacuum cleaner. And I'm singing into the handle like a picture of a rock star. Like I, I'm leaned back and my eyes are closed, and I'm singing into this thing. And I enrolled in an acting class. It was a group called the Atlanta Workshop Players. That was really instrumental in helping me develop some raw abilities, you know, some raw talents. Uh, at the same time, I was singing in the church choir. And then when I got into high school, I joined the chorus class. Mm-hmm. Big high school. We probably had a 2,000 students in this high school. Mm -hmm. And what we did every year at the end of the school year was the students wrote a show. But these shows went on for like two and a half hours. I really got turned on to the writing process there. I think one of the earliest things I can think of was I had to do a, a book report project and the book I was doing was The Crucible by Arthur Miller. And I'll never forget, I wish I had a copy of this for my book report was I did a radio play. Now this was back in 1983, 84. I had one tape record And I recorded all my lines into this tape recorder. And then I had another tape recorder. And so I would do a second series of lines with that other tape recorder into this tape recorder. And then I played the second cassette, and I had another tape recorder that had sound effects. (laughs) And I did I basically created a multi-track But I didn't know it was Uh multi-track I didn't know what I was doing I just knew I wanted to create this finished product And I didn't know how I was going to do it Other than this Very interesting From there I got involved in bands And that's when I learned about Four-track recording And ultimately eight tracks And everything Uh So I was always singing and acting And somewhere along the lines I found that what I enjoyed more Was being off stage And directing other people Or being in a studio and, like, helping other people record music and saying to them, the bass guitar is not playing the same rhythm as the kick. Mm -hmm. We need to lock in that rhythm. Or, hey, let's try out this sound. It's like really change it up and get experimental with it. Toured Europe with a band when I graduated from high school, but I think I began to discover that my stronger strengths were the production side of it. Mm -hmm. When I got really involved in ministry, I was hired as a worship leader, but the pastor who hired me, I mean, he had visions for children's productions. He wanted to record record some worship CDs, ultimately got to record up in Nashville, a lot of original music that I recorded, wrote eight children's productions Mm -hmm. and published them, crossed over and started writing screenplays, and I got linked in with one of the producers of The Chosen. He hired me to write a couple of screenplays. They never went to production, kind of a freelance thing. I have sort of this series of novels that I've been doing called Paladin, which are very Narnia-esque. They use animals as the main characters. Mm-hmm. And I always wanted it to be a movie, but you know, if you write a screenplay, there's really no outlet for that if you don't have a producer. How am I going to get this to people? Mm-hmm. So I I wrote it as a series of novels.
0: There's a whole background of that okay. kind of stuff. And being wired that way, it finds its way into your ministry as yeah. pastoring, discipleship, and worship. One of the things I've heard you say a few times now on the importance of the Word of God, the Bible, and dwell on truth is the truth of the Bible. Yeah, You've said, that you're not encouraging people to read the Bible just because you're a pastor, mm. but you're a pastor because you love the Bible. You're, you're a great Bible teacher. I would say world-class Bible teacher because mm. I've heard you teach all over the world mm-hmm. from Denmark to Hungary to here in Northern California. And the motivation for you to stay in ministry when you, you've been the senior pastor here at Calvary Chapel Yuba City for six years, mm-hmm. qualified to do a lot of different things. What motivates you to, can you talk about that? that, how did you develop that love for the Word of God?
1: As I was growing up, I always anticipated some kind of a career in some arm of the entertainment industry, whether that was, you know, singing in a band or acting or whatever. Writing or directing. Writing, directing. As is the case, I think, for a lot of poetic, artistic young people, especially young men, I got very involved in alcohol and drugs. Hmm. I started drinking when I was very young, so it probably about 14 years old when I started drinking. Mm. And I drank heavily. I would call myself an alcoholic. I was probably an alcoholic by the time I was a senior in high school. That lasted into my early 20s and it opened the door to to smoking a lot of pot. Uh, I did other drugs. I did LSD, shrooms, speed. Mm. Uh, Never did those things with a tremendous amount of frequency, but alcohol was really my drug of choice.
0: Did you ever have any bad trips where you had some weird spiritual experience on shrooms, or
1: not on shrooms, but definitely on LSD? Mm. Yeah, and in, in fact, I, I would say it was probably having a bad trip on LSD that resulted in me deciding I don't really want to go down that road.
0: Did it scare you?
1: It really did. Yeah, yeah, me and me and a buddy of mine, we got a hold of some. I don't know how much you want to talk about this, but well, people talk about it on the station we're at. We were members of a fraternity at Georgia State University. And we got a hold of some LSD through some guys I worked with. I was doing landscaping at the time. Who we got it from was like, oh, it's not real strong. So you may have to take more than you, you normally do. And I was like, okay, you know, I, we were at a party and we took a hit. Nothing happened. And I think an hour later, we took another hit. I think all told, we took about four or five hits of acid. I don't know whether that's a lot or not. Well, it depends on the acid. But about six hours after we took the first hit, it was like the seams of reality began to become unstitched. Oh, no. And it happened for both of us like right at the same time. Uh, We made one of the big mistakes that we had nowhere to go and so we ended up renting a hotel room and we just essentially sat there for the next several hours experiencing this really bad acid experience. That was the drug, or of course I could talk about alcohol in this regard too, that was the drug where I was like I became really convinced this is demonic. And it really can open a door to the demonic. Hmm. Because you have to understand, like, I was, even though I was in this place in life, I had grown up as a believer and knew, you know, all about the Bible. And I was the weird guy who would get drunk and and smoke dope at parties and then start talking about God. You know, I was, I used to really annoy all my friends. They're like, why are you talking about this? You know? I've met other
0: people like that.
1: That was the experience where, where I was like, I'm not, I'm not doing this anymore. That was demonic. That was in my early early 20s. When I was 22, I moved out of my parents' house. That experience that I just described probably happened more when I was like 21. Mm -hmm. When I was 22, I moved out of my parents' house. I moved out to Texas for a short while. I mean, I was like 22, 23 years old, and I was already kind of a burned out, washed out, you know, I don't want to do this anymore. And I remember laying on my bed in my apartment in Texas, staring at the ceiling, and I said out loud, I said, there has got to be more than this. I made the decision, I want to start going back to church. Not long after that, I ended up moving back to Georgia, and I started going to a Calvary chapel. Within about a six-month period of time, and this is this is now going to answer your question. So Psalm 119 says, how can a young man cleanse his way, but by taking heed according to your word? People ask me all the time, what kind of rehab did you go through? I didn't. What happened for me was I went to a church that taught the Bible, and through a steady diet, a steady stream of God's word being spoken into my life, I just, watched. God begin to do this radical cleansing experience. And um, some, sometimes I think people make the mistake of thinking, you have to hear a Bible study about a particular topic to address something in your life. And I always like to talk to people about the fact that um, when I, I... I remember going home and flushing my bag of weed down the toilet because I had heard a Bible study on marriage. It had nothing to do with no longer doing drugs. It was just the power of God's Word. Yeah. Yeah. And so people have to make sure they don't think, oh, I got to hear a message about a topic for that to be relevant or to impart power to me. No, it's just the word of God. Let God choose the passage for you, He'll take care of that. And what happened for me was suddenly everything I had ever wanted to do didn't matter anymore. I remember getting invited by my old pastor, Sandy Adams, to go to a pastor's conference. So this flat, I was now 23. I had moved back to Georgia, 23, 24. Uh, I started going to Calvary Chapel. I got invited to go to a pastor's conference in Florida, and, uh, you know, this would have been 1994. Five and so all the big guys in Calvary Chapel at that time were there. Chuck Smith was there. Brian Broderson was there. Uh, Don McClure, Damian, Kyle—they were all there. And I remember sitting there. That was the first time I remember consciously thinking as somebody taught the Bible. I remember thinking, "I think I could do that." Mm. And then I got asked to teach a Bible study, and I still have a copy of those notes because I got asked to teach at a youth group. I did a Bible study called "Cool Like Jesus," and I kid you not, <laughs> after I taught that. Bible study, when I was done, I remember thinking, I think that's what I was put on earth to do. That's what you're supposed to do. And I've never stopped doing it. And the reason I'm so passionate about it is because I saw how God like dramatically, I think it's probably difficult for people to understand the speed and Mm -hmm. the level of change that I saw in my life through the Word of God being spoken into my life. And so I am extremely passionate about teaching the Word of God. I take it very seriously. I think people yeah. look at me sometimes, and they think, "Man, why do you take this so seriously?" Like when it comes to getting up there on a Sunday, or if you're speaking somewhere, you know, why are you so intense about it? It's because it's it, this. This has the uh, the power to change
0: someone's life. It's worth being passionate about God's eternal word. Yeah, yeah. I never heard that before about how it doesn't. You don't have to be teaching on a topic for someone to give up what they know to be yeah. sinful and demonic and leading you down a path away from God. And Jesus prayed in John 17, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. Really, it's a package deal. You don't come to Christ and say, okay, prove to me every step of the way. Right? He is gracious at incrementally showing us things that he wants to deal with in our lives. But yeah. when you surrender to Christ, it's like my whole life is yours. That's, that's repentance. It's a change of mind that leads to a change of direction. I think we have that in common too, that radical conversion, Mm. that God takes someone who is going 110% in the world toward the flesh and the devil and realizing that's the wrong direction. We need to turn and follow Christ with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Thank you for telling more of the story. I hadn't heard a lot lot of that. Another thing I admire about you, and we can shift gears here, is uh, we had talked about it yesterday with our audiovisual team training, Mm. is excellence in ministry. You talk about worship. How could we do worship? In a way that's better. It's not just Christian karaoke or, you know, why do all Christian songs sound like you too? It was Billy Corgan who said
1: that. Billy Corgan of Smashing Pumpkins made that observation that all Christian artists try to sound like you too.
0: So maybe we can talk about, like, let's dream a little bit of, like, what does God want from our worship? Jesus is seeking those who will worship him in spirit and truth. What does that mean for someone who comes from a musical background? And how can the church maybe be a little more? more innovative, if there's any scripture that comes to mind or any truths that kind of inform, why are you so uh, desirous to do things as best as we possibly can do them?
1: Well... To me, it's almost like two different two different questions. Because the weird thing is, my first full time ministry position was as a worship leader, mm-hmm. and eventually I, I also took on the role. Our youth guy stepped down, and I took on the role. And I was single at the time, so I had a bunch of time on my hands. But you have to understand that the church I worked at, it was, a, it was a church of decent size. It was probably about 1,000 people. I was suddenly in an environment where I was getting to put a lot of my theater-related abilities to use. I was writing. I was, I was directing plays. We did a lot of professional-level music. We had a really good band. They were probably paid also. To- no, they weren't. No, they weren't? No. In fact, that's something else we could talk about. I do. I see a tremendous change in the expectation that people have nowadays. Uh-huh. You know, oh, yeah. but, I remember
0: talking with you about yeah, that.
1: I mean, when I when I and back in the early nineties, man, every worship leader I knew was a volunteer. Huh. And now every everybody that wants to be a worship leader, like it's attached to the expectation that they will get a paid job doing that. And if you, and if I don't get a paid job, then I'm not gonna do it, you know. And that that to me has really emerged out of the industrialization of the worship music industry. Mm-hmm. But where I was going with that is, you know, I was the guy I I mean, my my pastor was very in favor of special music, so we would you know we would take songs this we would take any popular song off the radio so this was back when like the the song by George Harrison I got my mind set on you and I would rewrite the lyrics to to match that passage in Isaiah about you know you will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed upon you uh-huh. so I rewrote the lyrics to I got my mind set upon you we did Bachman Turner overdrive and and you know did did all these like really like well-known tunes and reproduced them with tremendous amount of excellence, mm-hmm. and my my pastor was always kind of wanting to push the envelope in that this was this was back sort of at the ad, the very beginning of when Willow Creek was starting to come onto the scene, and they were doing like a drama every morning
0: at Willow Creek. For those who don't know, it's a very
1: seeker sensitive yeah. church, very big, inter- big the entertainment. Yeah, and so my pastor kind of came to me was like, I want to start doing this. So I was writing skits and doing video editing, and and uh, you know every it was like every week we had to have something. Mm -hmm. But what was interesting to me was I began to be the guy who, even though I loved it, I began to be the guy who started to push back against it. I began to be the voice of saying, we're going to get caught in a hamster wheel Mm. of thinking we have to outproduce ourselves every week. And I think it, when it when it all kind of – you ever have one of those moments where when you're talking to somebody, um, it's like as you're saying something, you're, you're putting into words what you've been thinking? Mm-hmm. I'll never forget my – again, my pastor – I love my old pastor. He was kind of notorious. He was like an 11th hour guy. So, you know, he would come into the office at 4 o'clock on a Friday afternoon, you know, because he's been off, you know, all week long, you know, thinking about what he's going to teach. And he would come in and he would say – Hey, this is what I'm teaching on on Sunday. We, I need a song. I need a song to go with this. Can we can we have some special music? Uh-huh. And initially, I was like, I loved the thrill. I couldn't find the song. You had a, song. a deadline Sunday morning yeah. to come up. I had a deadline Saturday morning because... <laughs> Our worship team was going to get together, so I had to come up with a song between Friday night to Saturday morning. Oh, wow. And a lot of times, rather than being able to to go and find a song, I would just sit down and write one. So it was a highly prolific period for me when it came to songwriting, because mm-hmm. he would give me a topic. you know, An hour later, I would knock on his door and I'd say, hey, I got a song, and I'd play it for him, and he'd be like, do it. <laughs> and so we'd put together a song and then never play it again. I can't tell you how many songs I wrote for a single performance. Wow. Did you record that? Are
0: they somewhere on an
1: 8-track? This was before the day of YouTube. None of that existed. Uh, So I have so much material that, that doesn't live anywhere. But I remember he came in one day and he said, I think it was a Saturday actually, he came in and he said, we need a song for tomorrow morning. And I said, Sandy, let me ask you a question. I said, we have three choices here. We can focus on the special music and the worship will suffer. I said, or we can focus on the worship and the special music will suffer or i can crack the whip and i can get out of our people really good worship and really good special music i said but our relationship with the people will suffer. suffer i said which one of those three do you want mm. and he just looked at me and he said and he kind of initially kind of fought with me and and i said sandy this is what you hired me to do i said you hired me to assist you in this area and i'm telling you these are the three options the worship will suffer. The special will suffer, or worse, our relationship with our people will suffer. They'll Something's get burned out. Something's
0: gonna suffer if Something you try to suffer. do it all.
1: He relented. He was like, "Okay," and we didn't do it. And but it was kind of that at that moment. I be- I was the one who was beginning to go. There has to be somewhere that we say in our striving for excellence hmm. that that isn't ultimately what drives us. Ultimately, what drives us is we just we want to worship the Lord because I I do think like we. We have gotten ourselves into a trap Mm. in the modern day church. It was Gail Irwin. Not everybody I'm sure is listening knows who Gail Irwin is, but Gail was a great Bible teacher, speaker who would go around to conferences and author of the Jesus style. He was just great, and he was the guy that I remember saying that we are beginning to see a phenomenon in the modern day church where people are worshiping worship.
0: Mm, That's a huge problem.
1: He said they're not worshiping Jesus, they're they're moving from meeting to to meeting, gathering to gathering, pursuing a better worship experience mm. instead of focusing on worshiping Jesus. And I was so... I've never forgotten that because I thought, he's right. He's absolutely right. And so I'm I, I do want us to give our best. You know, I do want us to serve with excellence. And I do want to, like... Within limits of not making people suffer in yeah, relationships. And, and, and to not become so obsessed with the experience that what we sacrifice is the, the object of our worship. And I see that. I see that with a lot of people. I see a lot of people who that is where they're at. They don't even... Many people don't even know it. Mm. You know, anytime you hear somebody go to church or go to a meeting and they come out and they make this they make this statement, they say, church was really good today. The worship wasn't that great, but it was good, you know. What does that even mean? Because if Jesus never changes, he's the same yesterday, today, and forever, Mm -hmm. and he is the one we worship, how can you say the worship wasn't that good? What they mean is the The music music or the production wasn't that good. Mm -hmm. So people have started to equate the production with the worship, and it's not the same. And so... There's somewhere in there, there's a very fine line of of wanting to, to play skillfully
0: before the Lord, like the psalmist said, but not losing sight of why we do it. When it becomes a performance and that people are rating on how they enjoyed the performance, we forget that worship is supposed to be to God and for God. And we build one another up in worshiping him by magnifying him as great. Mm-hmm. The pendulum can swing, though, to the other extreme, right? Right. Yes. There's there's an error on one extreme of being so interested in entertainment that people are just amused and their lives are not changed because they're not really thinking through right. things. It's an emotional roller coaster and the substance isn't there. But then the other extreme is nothing entertaining in church. Mm-hmm. Why do you do videos uh, with Spock and VBS mm-hmm. with Spider Man and right? You know you use these things in the culture. Uh, talk. A little bit about that redeeming the culture, yeah, but not swinging to the other extreme of we're just going to be the frozen chosen and right have no emotion, no excellence.
1: I do think it can swing, you know, in either direction. So for me personally, I, I do feel like, and I I don't want to say that I have you know mastered the discipline of of staying right in the middle. There probably are periods in my life where I've gone to one extreme or the other. Mm -hmm. But that's the history behind the song, The Heart of Worship by Matt Redmond. The story behind that song was Matt Redmond was leading worship at his church in England. His pastor began to observe what I was just talking about a moment ago, where people would say things like, "Um, worship was really good. The the bass was a little off, but worship was was really good. And he began to be very concerned at people paying more attention to the production side of it. And so he came into church one day with this announcement that we're not going to have have a sound system. We're not going to have a band. We're not going to have any instruments. We're going to come in and we're just going to sing to the Lord. And Matt Redman talks about how initially people were he used a term and I I forget exactly what the term was. It was like I think he called it an embarrassing silence that no one was willing to just stand there and a cappella sing. But after 6 months, he said that their church began to experience this, this kind of revival in their worship, and that's where the song came from, when the music fades and all is stripped away and I simply come, longing just to bring something that's of worth that will bless your heart, that's where that song came from, That, that same type of experience. But why I will sometimes do things like a Spider-Man VBS, here at Calvary Chapel Yuba City, we've done a Star Wars VBS, we did a Marvel-themed VBS. And VBS, for those not raised in church, stands for Vacation Bible Vacation School School's for Kids. A- it's a program, again, to kind of contextualize this, again, your listeners may not be aware, I'm a Calvary Chapel pastor, and Calvary chapels are known, one of their tenets is verse-by-verse Bible teaching. One of the things that I'm really fascinated by, when you look at the earthly ministry of Jesus, there's very little verse-by-verse Bible teaching. What you find is an itinerant speaker who will say things like this, and of course I'm paraphrasing, let me tell you a story. Uh-huh. A farmer goes out and he scatters some seed on the ground, and some of that seed, you know, and he, and he tells this story. And at the end of the story, if you just take the story, there is nothing inherently spiritual about it. There's no scripture reference mm-hmm. There's no, thus saith the Lord. I mean, to the point that even his own disciples came to him and said, why do you teach that way? Mm -hmm. You know? And Jesus's answer is profound to me, because again, I'm paraphrasing, but what he basically says is, I teach this way so that people who want to know what I'm talking about will know what I'm talking about, but people who don't want to know won't. Now, for me as a pastor, that's almost the antithesis of what I want. I want everybody to know what I'm talking about. I want everybody to get, like, if I was God...
0: didn't you want everyone to understand and get the illustration?
1: I would want to teach in such a way that I left no room for doubt, you know, about who I was. Now, yeah, you have you have occasions like Jesus in the temple where he took the scroll of Isaiah and he read it. You could call that verse-by-verse Bible teaching, mm-hmm. where he says, today this is fulfilled in your hearing. He read from the scripture and he applied it. Mm-hmm. That's what we could call verse-by-verse Bible teaching. And I'm sure that he knew he was going to do that. I'm sure that Jesus knew what the passage was going to be ahead of time, right? So he yep. planned it out much the way a modern-day pastor would. My point is, stories are very powerful, and stories, I believe, have the ability to bypass the intellect and and connect directly with someone's heart. Mm. And I think that's why stories are so resonant, is because what we usually have a tendency to do when someone's telling a story is we put ourselves into the story, and we think, what would I do if I was in that situation? Um, if you listen to a guy like George Lucas talk about what inspired his writing of the Star Wars films? Yeah. You know, The Hero's Journey. Yeah, you we and were I were talking about, about that. that. Yeah. So, same kind of concept. You know, what makes these things emotionally resonant? So, I. I think stories are really profound and I love using stories to communicate spiritual truths. Mm-hmm. If I look at my kids, I have 5 kids, all under the age of 13. 13, 9, 7, 4 and 1-year-old. And they see they see these things around them. They they know who Indiana Jones is. They know who Spider-Man is. They know, you know, who the Star Wars characters are. If if for no reason other than my kids can watch an Indiana Jones film, and say, this is just like what we did at VBS, suddenly they're not saying VBS is like Indiana Jones. They're saying, this is like what we did at church. Uh That, to me, will affect the rest of the course of their life, because now they're suddenly learning to interpret stories through the filter of what does this communicate spiritually, which is what I think the purpose of the parables was, was what does this communicate spiritually? So that's where my passion is for, for storytelling and using those things sometimes
0: times. Yeah, there's something wired into us. God has written eternity in our hearts. Mm -hmm. His law is written on our hearts. The meta-narrative of scripture and this great story that God has told in the pages of the Bible yeah, and all these great movies, they borrow from that script. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) And so rather than let the world continue to tell our story, we should be able to learn how to communicate in story form. is very powerful for millennia. Yeah. Uh, But also, I was just thinking about what you're saying with Jesus not teaching verse by verse but he did lay down precepts line upon line Mm. but his apostles wrote what he taught and we could study that verse by verse. I do think uh, like with the Sermon on the Mount or the Sermon on the Plain in Luke as an itinerant preacher traveling and and preaching that he did teach the same message in different places and the disciples were familiar with illustrations and stories that he would tell and they would ask the question uh, not just why do you speak in parables but what's the meaning of that parable? And he would give them the key parable is this parable of the soils. Mm-hmm. If you don't understand this parable, how will you un- understand all the other parables? So Jesus is that sower of the seed, which is the seed is the word of God.
1: I agree with you, but what's so interesting is that he didn't explain it to the multitudes. No, he, he
0: didn't. He explained
1: it privately to the disciples. Because they, they asked. asked. Because they asked. Mm-hmm. So in a sense, this, those stories were intended to get people to engage. And to ask the deeper questions, yep. I see the ministry of the church that way. You know, Sunday mornings is an opportunity to speak to the multitudes.
0: Mm-hmm. I
1: don't know if everyone there is saved. Who comes to our church, if they know Jesus. I don't know how long they have known Jesus. So to be able to do those, you know, addresses to the multitudes, but then to be able to pull your disciples aside mm-hmm. and really go more in-depth and explain what were you talking about. Like, you know, as a result of yesterday's teaching, I have somebody who has reached out to me and said, hey, I want to come by this week, you know. And talk to
0: you about what we were just talking about on Sunday. Yeah, I think that's great. That's how discipleship happens. Yeah, not just from the pulpit, but in life and being able to talk about things. You know, if my kids
1: now are pro- if they're looking around the world and processing stories through a spiritual filter, that that is what ultimately what we're talking about. We're talking about redeeming something out of the world. It's like it's like the pumpkin parable that we do. Mm-hmm. You know, Halloween every year, there's jack o' lanterns everywhere. So we do our pumpkin parable, and the whole point of it is to relate it to God's work in our life so that we're training people to look around through a lens. Because that's what Jesus did. Consider the lilies. Exactly. He would say, hey, you know, consider the birds of the air, mm-hmm. you know, and, and just, he would be able to point to stuff. Man, I want my kids looking around at the world and going, that's like God working in our lives. Yeah. Take that all the way up the ladder. It's like to be able to look at world politics through the lens of what does Scripture say? The modern day church world is sort of, well, at least in America. America, seems very obsessed with earthly politics we'll pray thy kingdom come thy will be done and so we want Jesus to come back um, but we also want Jesus to fix our earthly political system it's like in a sense we're saying Jesus I want you to come back but I want you to preserve America what if Jesus says in order for me to come back I America has to go away. Do we want Jesus to come back enough that we'd be willing to say, well, if okay then, I guess if America needs to go away, then get rid of America so that you can truly
0: fulfill your promises. I'm not following why Why would America have to go away for Jesus to come back, maybe for the Antichrist to be revealed.
1: Because Jesus isn't going to come back until the Antichrist is revealed. I mean, not, you're talking about the rapture. The rapture can happen. Oh, sure. Rap- yeah,
0: I'm talking about the rapture. Jesus the coming back is the second coming. I see. The millennial reign on earth. Yeah. yeah. Jesus isn't going to rule the world and then compete with America being <laughs> a world power. Think of it this way. For years, biblical
1: scholars would look Look at prophecy, and they would say, how are all these end-time prophecies going to happen? Because what they couldn't figure out is Israel doesn't exist. So how, how are all these end-time, how is there going to be a rebuilt temple? Because Israel doesn't exist from after the, the dispersion, you know, I mean, Israel was gone. Jews were scattered all around the planet. So how did how did Israel get reborn? It got reborn through World War II and Nazi Germany and the persecution of Jews. So think about it. In like a short period of time, Israel went from no longer existing to suddenly being a sovereign nation. Right. And how did that happen? Like, I I never would have chosen the path of a maniacal leader like an Adolf Hitler and the persecution of Jews to bring about
0: the fulfillment of a biblical prophecy. But that's exactly what the Lord allowed. Because the world realized how wrong they had been to the Jews. And they felt sorry for them. For
1: a moment, they took pity on the Jews, granted yeah, them, their, them their land back. Yep. Yeah. But what I'm saying is, why did that happen? That wouldn't have happened. That didn't happen without Hitler and Nazi Germany and and the persecution of it Jews. It took
0: that terrible tragedy to bring about that
1: good so, think of it in, along those lines. There are certain things that have to happen in order to bring about a global... This is why it's it's really fascinating when you look at, like, why was Satan trying to kill off the Jews that were being born around the birth, at the time of the birth of Christ? It's like, because if he can kill off all the male children that were Jewish, then then the, the promises of God can't be fulfilled. Mm-hmm. And And somebody once said that's the same reason why the Antichrist will want to... To destroy Israel. Yeah, because the second coming also can't take place, so God can't fulfill his promises. So that's what I'm saying is to begin to process what's happening in the world through a lens of what does scripture say? Yeah. What does scripture have to say about this?
0: There are different interpretations within different churches. I think Calvary chapels have a pretty cohesive biblical view, but it's not essential for salvation for someone to have our end times view. So we tend to stick to the gospel. And focus on evangelizing and making disciples and worshiping God. And I'm blessed to talk with you about worship. We've talked about apologetics, talked a little bit about discipleship and training other people. Maybe in our last few minutes, we could talk about evangelism and Mm -hmm. how you see God working in Yuba City. And you've been bringing along not just me, but there's other evangelists that God seems to be bringing into your life. And Mm -hmm. how do you see that being part of the church our Harvest Fair, Mm -hmm. speaking of redeeming things in the culture. Absolutely, yeah. There were hundreds of people on campus, maybe a thousand? I don't know how many people There was a lot of people here, yeah. Share a little bit about your heart there, if you don't mind. I I do think it's kind
1: of connected to what we were talking about with worship. We live in a time, culturally, that a lot of people in the modern-day church, their church-going experience is more spectator-oriented than participant-oriented. Anytime someone's lacking any... particular facet of their Christian life, Mm -hmm. something's missing. So, if their prayer life is lacking, I think there's a dynamic that's missing. If their reading of God's Word is lacking, then there's something that's missing. And I think that evangelism is another one of those things. You could apply it to anything. You could apply it, I mean, one of the reasons I'm really big on people serving in the context of a local church is because serving is, is commanded, mm-hmm. you know? So, if people just choose not to do it, then they they're essentially settling for a Christian experience that is less than the ideal. And I think evangelism is another one of those things, where in the modern day church, Jesus says to every individual Christian, go into all the world and preach the gospel. The modern church has become good at uh, go to church, let the church schedule evangelistic outreaches, and then I will participate. Thus I have fulfilled this commission to go and preach the gospel. No, not necessarily. There's probably no better example of this than when Mel Gibson's The Passion of the Christ came out so many years ago. What did 80% of the Christian community do at that point in time? Hey, come see this movie with me.
0: They rented out the theater and Mm -hmm. handed out tickets. It's free. So the
1: question becomes, was the passion of the Christ an accurate depiction of the preaching of the gospel? It depends, I guess, on the lens that you view it through. pieces there. There were pieces there. But Jesus never said, go into all the world and invite your friends to watch a movie. He said, the commission is you go and you share the gospel with people. And that's missing from a lot of Christians' lives and because of that okay if we if you apply that to any other thing in scripture that Jesus tells us to do if we're not doing it we call it disobedience. So that means there's a lot of people who are Christians mm. who are not obeying the command to preach the gospel. So that's a big deal mm. to me.
0: We believe that that's a command for all Christians, yeah. not just a special elite group of people. It's yeah. the great commission it's called, but it ends up being the great omission.
1: I think it's great that, you know, the, the you know the Billy Graham evangelistic crusades take place and the harvest crusades take place, but Again, the command isn't you know go go to end all the world and invite people to the harvest crusade. Uh-huh. It's you share the gospel with someone, and something happens when we do. You know when Paul quotes from Isaiah when he says, "How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel." I could look it up, but what's interesting is that the phrase for beautiful or the word for beautiful there is lively. The meaning is is how lively are the feet. Of those who preach the gospel yeah.
0: Isaiah 52, 7 How beautiful upon the mountains Are the feet of him who brings good news Who publishes peace Who brings good news of happiness Who publishes salvation Who says "Design your God reigns And that was quoted in also Romans 10, 15 yeah.
1: So what, the idea of beautiful People here are, oh, beautiful feet The idea is lively And everybody knows what it means to have a spring in their step mm. Everybody knows what it means to get good news And it changes your attitude And you're it's like zippity-doo Duh, you know? And I talk about how there is something that happens through you sharing the gospel with someone else that puts a spring in your step. In a way that not sharing the gospel doesn't. Mm. And I would say every single Christian that I've ever talked to about this completely agrees, that you know what it's like when you share the gospel with someone, uh-huh. and they listen, and the light bulb goes on. You come away from that with a sense of, oh man, that was amazing. Now, you're not so much patting yourself on the back, you know, but you're, um, you're just amazed. Like, I remember I had an experience... I've had so many interesting experiences in my life when it comes to this. I remember one time I was I was late to a family gathering. So this is back before I was married. I was still single, but I was in full-time ministry. And my family was notorious for doing things on a Sunday afternoon, you know? And I was always saying to my mom's like, why do we have to do it on Sunday? It's the busiest day of the week for me. So I'm running late. It was it was a birthday celebration for me. So I'm late to my own birthday celebration. <laughs> and I pull into a gas station because I needed gas, and there was a guy in a VW in the phone booth. This is back before cell phones, right? He's in the phone booth. And as I pulled in to get gas in, in my car, I just felt like the Lord said, go talk to that guy. And I was like, oh, no. He he was who I was, you know, five years ago. He was, he was a hippie. Long beard, tie-dye. It's exactly who I used to be. Go talk to this guy. I was like, no, no, no. I'm running late for my birthday, you know. And so I'm putting gas in my car. And the whole time he's over there, you know, go talk to this guy. No, no, no. no I'm running late and everything. Get done putting gas in my car. And I turn around to leave. And I kid you not, this guy pulls up. In the van, right in front of me, throws open the door and he puts his feet out and he looks at me and he says, Do you ever feel like God is just trying to get your attention? (laughs) And I was like, Yeah, I know exactly what you mean. And I just, Uh from that moment, that from there on, just proceeded to share the gospel with this guy. It was just absolutely amazing, you know? (laughs) And I think that those types of things are all around us. Yeah. You know, I had a, I have a pastor friend who did a little experiment one time where he had three questions. Don't remember exactly what the, the three questions were, but the gist of them were this. Do you believe in God? Has anyone ever had a conversation with you about Jesus? And the third question was, would you be willing to have a conversation with someone about Jesus? Hmm. He went and stood outside of a local grocery store and just started interviewing people. He said almost every single Christian that he talked to, person who claimed to be a Christian, the answer was, yes, I believe in God, but what I believe about this is a private matter, and I don't really like to talk to people about my religion. He said that was the basic answer that he got from Christians. No, I don't want to have a conversation about Jesus. Yep. Meanwhile, the answer he got from people that weren't Christians was they would love to have a conversation with someone about Jesus and they but they can't find anyone <laughs> to have a conversation with them about Jesus. So how diabolical is this? So think about this. This is again going back to what you were saying about Satan kind of flipping the script. Yeah. Satan, I think, has done an effective job of convincing people, Christians, that the gospel, the preaching of the gospel is not the most effective way to introduce people to Jesus.
0: I've heard people say that sincerely, thinking yes. that, yeah, it, that's the old way. It doesn't work anymore. It doesn't work.
1: People don't want to listen. <laughs> Meanwhile, there's people out there who want to have a conversation mm-hmm. with someone about Jesus, but all the Christians who know Jesus uh-huh. are convinced that nobody wants to have conversations uh-huh. about Jesus. So I I just think that there is a really a tremendous need mm. to um, challenge people. I guess is a yeah. you know I would say it in I mean then the healthiest way okay. uh, to challenge people to to step out in faith and get out there and share the gospel. Okay, and look for those opportunities. You know, and just just in a one-on-one way. You know, who your coworker, mm-hmm. the person who lives next
0: to you or across the street. So. Very good. So if you're a Christian out there, share your faith. And if you know you're called to share the faith and don't know exactly how, get in touch with us. We'd be happy to help Absolutely. equip you. You can come alongside, see how we do it. Speaking of setting an example of sharing the gospel and challenging someone, can I challenge you, Kevin, to end our broadcast with sharing the gospel? There's a lot of non-Christians that listen to this station, and I'm praying for them to come to Christ mm. to get saved, but not only that, but to take those steps to start following Jesus yeah. today may be their day to be saved. So where we're at here in Yuba City, you can preach to a bunch of people in the Monterey Bay area and all over the world listening. What is the gospel? Well, the gospel
1: is simply the the reality. I don't want to say the belief. It's the reality that there is a God. You know, Romans chapter 1 um, makes it clear that that God has revealed himself to man. and But Paul says that we have uh, suppressed that truth in unrighteousness we all know what it means to be sinful, you know, and I think that the simplest way of helping people to really see that is, you know, you ask questions like, have you ever had to, you know, teach a child how to be selfish? Have you ever had to teach a child how to tell a lie? Kids naturally know how to be selfish. Yeah. Kids don't struggle to lie. They they struggle to tell the truth, you know what I mean? And it's because we all have this condition, this sinful condition. It's like a virus Mm -hmm. that has been passed on to us. It's not so... Much anything we did as an individual, it's a condition we inherited. Uh, it's the same way I'm—I'm I'm Caucasian. I am a white male because I inherited yes. that from my parents. Well, Adam and Eve, as as the first two human beings who committed sin, they passed on this condition to all of us. And the longer mankind, the longer the longer the human race has gone on, it's just reproduced and reproduced and reproduced. We all have. This fallen condition, we all have this tendency to want to rebel against the things of God. Oh, yeah. And what the Bible says, going back to that idea of suppressing the truth and unrighteousness, that word suppressing, it's an interesting word. It's a nautical term. It means to steer against the current. So Romans chapter 1 says, we all know there's a God. We're born that way. But we steer against the current, and through our own unrighteousness, we press that truth down mm. because we don't want to believe there's a God. Uh, because we don't want the accountability mm-hmm. where God has ultimately revealed himself is in Jesus uh, God loved us so much that God looked down uh, upon us in this fallen condition and took it upon himself and he he knew this is what he was going to do from the very beginning it's not as though God was scrambling and decided to come up with a plan uh, God knew what he was going to do to take on our own form the the, the form of humanity yeah. but he didn't inherit our sinful condition because God the father was his his father he was born through a woman mm-hmm. but the sinful condition comes from the man right and since god was his father jesus didn't inherit that sinful condition he was born perfect you know he he never sinned what makes Who Jesus is so amazing and so accessible is that he was made in all ways, just like you and me. He was a human being, but he was fully God. Tempted in every way. Tempted in every way, yet without sin. Yet sinless. Yeah, and that he loved us so much that our sin, which deserves punishment... You know, everybody knows that when somebody does something wrong, you're never going to find, well, I shouldn't say never, maybe in today's society, you'll find someone who believes that if somebody does something wrong, you know, that it's it's unjust to expect that they pay for that wrongdoing. Most of us believe that that is the right thing. Uh-huh. So Jesus loved us so much that he was willing to take on our form. And he lived a sinless life. He never did anything wrong, but was willing to have all the punishment for all of our wrongdoing placed upon him and pay that debt, and then come back to life three days later to demonstrate that he was fully God, Mm -hmm. that in fact he had paid that price. And now the amazing thing about the gospel... All we have to do is believe that. All we have to do is believe that Jesus is who he claimed to be, Mm -hmm. that he did live a sinless life, that he did die for our sins, and that he did come back to life from the dead, declaring himself, proving himself to be the Son of God with power by the resurrection. And if we just believe that, we can be saved. We can be bought back from this sinful condition and guaranteed life evermore in him. It's amazing. The gospel is absolutely amazing. Yes. So the response
0: to that good news lively joy yeah Look how much he loved us in spite of how wrong we've been giving us another chance to know him and be in peace with him not just one chance but right many and uh, to be reconciled with him what must someone do to receive that peace with god to be reconciled to not be punished for their sin just believe yep is it just believe that god exists or believe in who jesus is and what he's done yeah I, I don't think
1: it's be- just believe that god exists you know that the demons believe that that God exists, and they tremble. It's believing the claim. It's believing who Jesus is, because Jesus says, "No one comes to the Father." except through me. Mm-hmm. So one must believe in Jesus, right? Um, that That is what makes, and there's people who really struggle with the exclusivity, the exclusive claim. Yeah. So it's not so much an exclusive claim of Christianity, it's an exclusive claim that Jesus himself makes. Christ. Yeah, you, the only access you will have to the God who created you is through me. That's the only way. I am the way, the truth, the life. Yes. So it mu- it's a belief in Jesus. Yeah. And, and it's a repentance, you know? It's a willingness to believe in who Jesus claims to be to the point that you're willing to submit to his lordship, his authority in your life, Yeah, which means you're willing to turn away mm-hmm. from a life of, of going in a direction opposite of him and follow him. You
0: know, Jesus calls people to follow him. Yeah. I like that, the way you defined repentance there, to go from unbelief to belief, from not following him, rebelling against him to following him Mm -hmm. or at least being willing to because you can't be perfect not like you have to clean yourself up before you're saved but just the willingness Mm -hmm. and the change of mind to trust him he sees that faith as righteousness so that is good
1: news i'll just add this in the the word for belief in the Bible, when the Bible talks about, you know, whoever believes that Jesus has He's been born raised born from born. the dead, the word for belief is is a Greek word, pistis, which means to, to rest your weight fully upon something. Yeah. So in the same way that you, you and I are sitting on these couches, we've rested our weight. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not just sort of this emotional, mental acknowledgement. It, it's, it's, I'm putting all of my eggs in one basket. I am placing everything, my entire life, I'm leaning all my weight Upon this, I'm not doing it until I see if it works out for me. Yeah, some people say that. Well, you know, I'm going to give this Jesus thing a try. Mm, that's not resting your weight entirely upon something. It's
0: not wishful thinking or just mental assent. Of... Exactly. To be all in, that's it's exactly not, right. Not just yeah. I believe he could do that. Mm-hmm. He will. Yeah. So good. Um, unfortunately, we're out of time for today's episode. So, uh, how can people get more information? If say they want to read your book or listen to your teaching. The website for Calvary Chapel Yuba City. CCUBACity.com. Same thing for YouTube. You just go to
1: YouTube slash CCYubaCity. Facebook CCYubaCity. Just go to Amazon and look up author Kevin J. Fitzgerald. They'll find all those books there. Awesome. Yep.
0: Well, thanks so much for being on the Dwell on Truth show. Absolutely. It's great, Kevin. God, I ask that you would use this for your honor and your glory. Mm-hmm. also pray for Brenton, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would fill him. Give him boldness, Lord, as he continues to venture out and follow your calling upon his life, that you'd bless him, provide for him. And Lord, most of all, that he would sense your smile, your whisper to his soul. Well done, good and faithful servant. Amen. For more, go to dwellontruth.org.
1: Is Your coffee spilling out of your cup holder every single morning when you're pulling out of your driveway, we can help with that. A lot of people have root damage in their driveways that can make a trip hazard. There could be large potholes, the drainage setup on a driveway cannot be right. Yeah, we can fix all that. Top grade paving is licensed, bonded, and covered under Workman's Comp. I'm Robert, 408
0: 455 8723. That's 408 455 8723. 408 Four five five eight seven two three.